This is Life to the Full Podcast, a message to Christian. (laughs) That's my husband. Um, Patty, that's Jimmy. We are the Zitos. And this podcast is about the abundant life that God promises in Scripture. And we really want to inspire those who are frustrated with themselves and their communities to live a transformed life that will impact the world. Hence, we have been frustrated with ourselves mm. and our communities, mm. and we're committed to a year of creating this podcast. And our primary purpose is to be a platform that will impact the world through conversation. And the conversation today and on every Wednesday is between my husband and I. So we started in spring of 2020 with the season of listening and staying curious in our relationships. Then for summer, we increased our vulnerability. And that was actually my favorite. We broke down two of my favorite books, which is The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And you're like, what? Why are we talking about dysfunctions, teams? I thought this was a message to Christians. <laughs> well, that book talks about trust and how to build trust because trust takes how long, honey? About two weeks? Trust takes time <laughs> to Forever. build. Yes. A long, long time. <laughs> I thought it was a trick question, so I froze. I was like, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. You're putting me on the spot. How long does it take? (laughs) It takes a long time. So where do we start? Who we go first? And who do we look up to? I mean, or who guided us, rather, Mm. this summer? Brene Brown, kudos to you. And hey, she has a Dare to Lead podcast. I hope that one day we are her guests. (laughs) I cannot wait to check out that podcast. Yes. And so we broke that down. Jimmy took us through a couple of the six myths that she talks about. Broke it down to basically you walk with God. Mm -hmm. And then you spend the rest of the time in the armory. And we ended in a conversation about the new humanity. Mm. Our responsibility. Mm. And it is now October of 2020. In this season, our theme is facing our responsibility. Yeah, facing our responsibility. Uh, our responsibility as followers of Jesus. Uh, I'm excited about all of this. I know we took a, like a two-week break, mm-hmm. two-week hiatus. Yes. Yeah. We've Much had- needed. Much needed. I uh, just needed to uh, take a step back and reflect on a few things, some decisions that we had to make, uh, some things that are happening in our own lives. Um, yeah, so we are... Ex- some fights. Yeah, some <laughs> fights about responsibility and all this, right. but I'm happy to be here sitting across from you. I'm excited right. to what you have in store. It, it, usually the first episode of every season gets me really excited. I'm like, okay, where are we going to go with this? We talk about certain topics, we discuss, we go back and forth, and then you disappear and make magic. Mm. So, what's cooking today? Yeah, so, you know, I've been doing a lot lately. I just wrapped up uh, a class that I've been doing on Sundays uh, on uh, how to read the Bible uh, better. Oh, Uh, rethinking. Rethinking the Bible. Mm -hmm. We called it uh, Ancient Paths and Modern Conversations. (laughs) We use the book of Jonah as our vehicle to kind of get us into uh, the Bible and learn how to read it. Since whoever wrote Jonah had basically downloaded the entire Hebrew Bible in his head. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and by extension, Jesus. You know, when Jesus referenced the story, he felt like it was all about him. And you're like, what? Fish? 
mm-hmm. being swallowed in the belly. Okay, maybe Jesus. And then when we broke it down, we really saw like, wow, this this small little book. It's about a page and a half in length. Yeah. It really just has so much. And uh, shout out to Tim Mackey and uh, Bible Project who helped me create the class. Our besties. Uh, who we don't know. They're still my besties. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you would say, who we don't know yet. Exactly. Right? Um, I took one of their uh, Bible Project classes online that's no longer available on the book of Jonah. And he kind of did that to us too. Learned a lot from the class. I felt mm-hmm. like... Uh, it made prepping for the podcast feel really, really easy. <laughs> mm, nice. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, look out for more. That was kind of like our beta testing uh, for some of the classes that we're going to be doing, live classes uh, coming hopefully more in 2021. But it was a great experience and uh, really looking forward to doing it again. And I want to give a shout out to our friends and those who yes. join our class. Our victims. I mean, volunteers. <laughs> it was so cool to have people in different parts yeah. of the country. Uh, some who are new, new to us, right? Yeah. Uh, and so shout out to Ohio. Woo! You know who Woo! you are. <laughs> That's right. Ohio. Yes. Oh, actually, now we have another person, right? Wow. We're we... known in Ohio. <laughs> People know us. We said this before. I don't remember what episode. I mean, it's only like five or six people, but how many people are really in Ohio? <laughs> like, so it's, it's probably like 90% of Ohioans that wow. we've reached. Really, honey? <laughs> With more people. But really, right now, we're directly talking about one. I've been to Ohio. It's like nothing but corn. Come on. <laughs> I guess there's a few cities. And there's that big lake. Anyway, so we are in a season of facing our responsibility. Yes. So, you know... Coming out of vulnerability, not to, you know, completely repeat everything you just said, uh, but I do want to say, I feel like vulnerability is one of those, it's such an important topic that it, I don't really feel like a lot of people are talking about. Yes. It's one of those things that it's, you know, it's there, like we kind of assume that we have it because we're Christians right. and that's what we're supposed to, we're supposed to be able to trust each other. We're supposed to trust God. So obviously if we're Christians, we have it. Um, and I, I just want to encourage you guys in case you're jumping into us now, uh, to go back and revisit those episodes, uh, pick up Brene Brown's book, yes. um, and follow our conversation. Cause you know, as great as Brene Brown's book is and all the research she's done, you know, I think we, we did a really good job of kind of like breaking it down for what that would mean to a church right. and what that would mean, uh, especially from a church that's, you know, similar to our background mm-hmm. and, um, box, if you will, like how to break it down with some common scriptures and some common misunderstandings of said scriptures that we've either been taught or used or what sometimes what, what, you know, if I've learned anything, uh, even from the class that we just came out of the rethinking the Bible class is that even just one little line, (laughs) a fraction of a sentence doesn't always mean what it seems to mean at face value. You have to be willing to do a little bit of work. Uh, at some point in your Christian journey. Maybe right. not right away. or maybe You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be a scholar, <laughs> but you just have to understand that, you know, just as, as we're called to follow Jesus, Jesus, you know, read what we would call the Old Testament, what he would just call his Bible or the scriptures. You know, Jesus went into those scriptures and he found everything there about him and his mission and his purpose. Shout out to William Barclay, The Mind of Jesus, another great book you guys should all get. And read, uh, we too, as Christians, eventually need to follow Jesus as well into the Hebrew Scriptures, into the Old Testament, and be able to see 
some of the big stories, the big overarching narratives that are there that according to Jesus are all about him, yeah. basically. Yeah. And can I also add to that is that when sometimes we get frustrated about, uh, oh, I'm not a scholar, I really don't know. How about all these 21st century century tools out there? I love all the tools that you shared. Yeah. And for me, it's made it, um, you know, it's like easy access. I, I mean, I do like to have a couple books and Bibles and, you know, the feeling that I'm, a, I'm researching for gold or something. Sure, yeah. However, just being able to go to a laptop and click on things has been <laughs> very powerful. <laughs> yes. Yeah if, it, yeah, if at all possible, always get the book. But, you know. Right. I only get the books to smell them. Time. <laughs> I mean, please shout out uh, to those who love smelling books. Uh, Come T- on. TMI, TMI. No, that, that's a thing. It's a thing. <laughs> Edit that out. People don't need to know that you have a book smelling problem. If you invite Patty into your house and you have new books, they will be smelled. All right. So today, what I thought we would do is because we kind of been uh, here and there hitting the concept of heaven and hell, heaven and earth, our ultimate you know, destiny, like what our purpose is. Yeah. So I thought it would be a good time in terms of facing our responsibility to really take a sort of a deep dive. I mean, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. You know, um, it's it's been very instructive in my life, uh, this studying out. Um, and I think it's it's really, really important. You know, I think there is a growing concern that most of modern Christianity has lost the story mm-hmm. and we've made it about other things mm-hmm. you know we've made it about things that destinations destinations instead of actually a journey instead of instead of a journey yeah and that comes with a whole host of problems yep. uh kind of that we've discussed in length but kind of just clearing the slate and just saying okay like we're coming to the bible we're not just coming to the new testament we're coming to the bible Right, like we even saw in the class we just did, not in the twenty little percent is at the end, right? right? Especially when you discount all of the tables and concordances and references that are in the back of most Bibles, it's really just this tiny little sliver. We're gonna wade into uh, the entire Bible and we're gonna try and see, okay, if I'm just approaching this as one unified story, where is this? Where is this gonna lead me? Mm-hmm. When Jesus shows up on the scene. What are some of the things that I should be tracking with that, you know, I should understand in the context of the entire Bible, what it is that Jesus is doing and what is he not doing? Especially since, you know, it's so easy sometimes just to kind of fill in like gaps, you know? Mm, Yes. You know, I think even like reading the letters of Paul, we can assume that he's, you know, an American theologian, you know, writing somewhere in Texas or Ohio, (laughs) right? And um, we think that, you know, he shares our values and he, he shares common <laughs> assumptions that we have about about spiritual things. And he, he doesn't. But because of Paul's style, we can so easily just fill in those gaps. And then when you slow down, because you really have to slow down for Paul, mm-hmm. as you do for most scriptures, and really like take it almost like word by word and find out where it's pointing you and all these little rabbit holes or, or hyperlinks, whatever you want to call it, uh, intertextually, how each part of the Bible is calling out to every other part of the Bible. Again, it seems overwhelming at first, 
But, you know, I think once you kind of get a few things under your belt, it's almost, it's magical, <laughs> you know. Uh, so I think we're going to start uh, here with a discussion about heaven and earth, okay. right? And we're going to just go through, you can call this maybe part one. I don't know if there'll be a part two yet. I'm uh, pretty sure it's going to be part <laughs> one, two, and three, but go ahead. We'll call this just the biblical story. What is up with you, by the way, with just like having to be in threes? Guys, even when we argue, she always has she always has like three points. There have been times where she stormed out of the room and she's given me only two points, and I go one, two, three, and before I get to ten, she comes back and she's like, and one more thing, and then she storms off. I don't like it. It's a, it's kind of <laughs> like with the the preaching, I guess that we I've actually brought up. Mm. I've been brought up in the past. 20 I guess you, years. your mind is just organized where you need three supporting points. <sighs> Maybe took a class in I college. I want to move towards one. One? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's been helpful lately. You know, like, who and what? Who and what? Like, who do I help? What do I do? Instead of like, these are all the things that I do, guys. Look at me. I'm so amazing. And, um, yeah. I don't know anyone who I don't, that. I'm not able to do all of it at once. Hmm. So, I, that that's my current journey right now. I hear you. Okay. I hear you. So I hope, hopefully, I um, mean, we'll see. So maybe this parts. will be just a part one and done, or maybe this will be a part <laughs> one, two, and three, or maybe it'll be a part that we'll just never finish. Because um, it, it is a, it's a very overwhelming topic. Okay. Heaven and earth. And I think sometimes the only way you can really discuss it, you can really only begin a discussion with it, is just to like kind of put everything to the side. Just kind of forget everything that you think you know. Mm. Or that you're sure that you know, and just kind of try and approach this. Let the Bible itself inform you of its own context. Yes. And you know, one of the things I keep talking about this class because we just finished it. Finished it. One of the things that this class kind of taught me is because I feel like this is the, you know, I've done some preaching and some like low key training over the years uh, since I, I first started like really getting into the larger story of the Bible. Obviously, coming in contact with all these resources like Bema and the Bible Project have really helped connect a lot of dots for me. Uh, but for me, it was always such a big story. It was always such a big thing because one thing connects to something else. Mm. And so the the class that we kind of just finished up, it really kind of got me into like, okay, how do I break this down for somebody? Yeah. <laughs> how do I take someone to one place in the Bible? We're going to spend four weeks there. Mm. And how do I give them everything? <laughs> Or as close to everything so that they could go somewhere else and they could kind of do what we just did, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And we're going to kind of just go into this. This is heaven and earth. And uh, I have a PowerPoint presentation for this because mm-hmm. I'm a little extra lately. And we'll, we'll put it on the uh, on our YouTube channel. Yeah, we'll put it on our YouTube channel. And we'll also have, uh, I'll put the slide deck in the show notes because Keynote doesn't always uh, translate well for those of you who are Microsoft lovers. All right, so Heaven and Earth, part one, the biblical story, a life to the full, a message to Christians. <laughs> All right, so first things first, uh, you know, we're going to start with the Bible itself. And once upon a time, long ago, you would have had to go in, you would have either had to know your Bible so well, right, that you knew how many times different words popped up, right, in the original languages, to really get a sense of what was going on and what was connected. Uh, or you would have to consult books and just count, 
Hmm. You know, I mean, when I was in college, there was there was Bible Gateway. Uh, It was very, very like new. Uh, But I remember first going into Wagner Library. Wagner College is a college in Staten Island. Uh, We had a campus ministry there. Mm -hmm. Um, They assumed I was a student because they would always just like let me in. Even when I would try to explain, I'm not a student. Can I buy a pass? They knew me by name. They actually figured out one time that I wasn't a student and they were like devastated. I was like, I know. I keep trying to pay to go here. Uh, But, you know, it was much different than the college I went to. I went to the College of Staten Island. Woo! Shout out. (laughs) Dolphins for life. (laughs) Uh, I don't even know. I think that we had a sports team when I went there. Uh, But anyway... Um, you know, being a secular college, it didn't really have many books about the Bible. It had some, mm-hmm. but, you know, it didn't have a whole bunch. Yeah. Um, but Wagner College had, you know, Bible dictionaries, concordances. It was the first time I ever uh, touched what, what's called like an interlinear Bible. What is that? So it's where you have the original words uh, underneath or above what's been translated. Mm-hmm. So you can see the original language behind what you're looking at okay and then it'll define those words and it will outline all of its biblical usage so it will take a word like um let's say like you know the personal name for god yahweh Mm -hmm. and it will tell you how it's always translated where it is in the bible or a word like pottery or a word like wrath or anything like that um it was called the interpreter's bible i was completely in love with it. <laughs> I just, I loved it. I, I think I photocopied one entire book because I was just like, and I still want to get it. I mean, I'm not like super thrilled with it anymore. Uh, having known more, it has a very evangelical slant, mm. very uh, restoration movement slant. It was kind of, come, it came from some of the, their best scholars back in their day. Mm. Uh, very much like the NIV, uh, okay. 1984, has a very like Protestant evangel- evangelical slant which is why it's not considered a great Bible. But many people enjoy it. I I still enjoy uh, the rhythm of the NIV. You know, I still have many scriptures in me that have that rhythm. Um, But when you kind of want to see what's connected in the Bible and, you know, what the Bible is trying to tell you, Mm -hmm. the easiest trick to learn is just looking for words that are together or repeated words. And that kind of gives you a sense of, what the Bible is trying to tell you, right? Because the Bible kind of messes with you that way. Sometimes it doesn't tell you everything, it and it or it tells you everything, but you have to go somewhere else <laughs> to figure it out. Like you can only understand it in context. So something that people have noticed for a while is that when you do a concordance search for the word heaven, <laughs> right, it appears about 622 times in the NIV, and in the New American Standard Version, which is currently one of my faves, it's kind of <laughs> tied with the English Standard Standard Version, uh, heaven comes up 637 times. So that that's pretty weighty, like an entire Bible, six over 600 times. Yeah. Earth, on the other hand, in the NIV, comes up 729 times. So that seems to be probably something that's important. Earth, in the New American Standard, comes up 861 so a little bit more, like, you know, depending on how they translate some words. You know, the New American Standard is is more close to the original languages, as is the ESV. Uh, but they're a little bit more clunky, like in terms of like, it's not the best English. It's 
it's a harder to read probably for most, but it's a great study Bible. And then you have everyone's favorite word, hell. Hmm. H-E double hockey sticks. (laughs) (laughs) I never heard of that. (laughs) As the nuns used to say in Catholic school. I love all your Catholic stories. (laughs) Oh my goodness. That that might actually be a Mama Zito. That might be like a... Yeah? Yeah. She's the one who told you? H-E double hockey sticks. Who knows? How adorable. But like, if you had to take a guess, how many times do you think that would appear in the Bible? You're probably the wrong person to ask. Yeah, I already did the research. <laughs> you already did this. Um, it appears 15 times, all of it in the New Testament. So that is something that it should be a, a big like, huh? Mm-hmm. That's weird. Like you know, when you first like think about that. Yeah. Um, this was my first gateway into it, uh, having you know read the entire Bible and just being like, did they forget about something? Like. Is there something like in the oral tradition that like is going to fill this out for me? But no, uh, it's just not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was in, you know, it is 15 times. And the NIV and the New American Standard agree that, you know, 15 times. Um, sometimes it does seem like Jesus is referring to an actual place. It seems like he's referring to uh, like what the Greco-Roman concept would have been of death or Hades or Sheol, the pit. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm. Yeah. Uh, lovely stuff, those Greek myths. No, uh, the pit. That's the one that... That gotcha? Yeah. And then when you put words together and you want to know, okay, like when the Bible talks about it in relation to each other, if you look for heaven and earth, right? In, in, in the NIV, you find it 158 times. In a New American Standard, you find it 170. So that seems to be, you know, connected. Somehow, like there's a lot of talk of heaven and earth, um, but earth and hell return zero results when you look for them together <laughs> in both the NIV and the New American Standard and heaven and hell uh, zero. Yes. You know, which is very, very interesting because, Extremely. you know, a lot of our Christianity is defined around yep. this concept it's the of, either or. of heaven and hell. Mm-hmm. Um you know, N.T. Wright does like to, you know, use the concept of packed baggage mm. when he talks about theological concepts that aren't necessarily explicitly spelled out in scriptures. So, for instance, like the idea of the Trinity, which I think we've, we've talked about before. A little bit, yeah. In, in POV. Um, you don't really find it much where, you know, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are together just a few times in the New Testament. Um, but it's something that, you know, people have made a case for. That, yes, these are three distinct beings that are one in the Godhead, right? Uh, And it's been an important concept over time because people have looked closely into the Bible and they've seen how these things are like separate beings and they almost were like, okay, were the Jews actually polytheists where they worship multiple gods versus monotheists? So it was like a whole big controversy. So that, you know, just because something isn't together doesn't mean it's not there. Right. Right. But it is indicative that there there could be a problem Mm -hmm. with the way we're thinking, especially with so much of modern Christianity being defined on heaven and hell. Like, you know, Christians are going to go to heaven. Everyone else is going to hell. Whereas in the kingdom is going to heaven. Whereas outside the kingdom. It doesn't matter even necessarily if you're a good person. You could be the best Buddhist that has ever been, you know, uh, never even, you know, heard an animal to get a nice steak. Mm-hmm. been a poor vegan your whole life shout out to vegans love you much 
Um, but if you didn't know Jesus, right, you're, you're going to end up in hell, not heaven. You're not going to let in. And I think we could do more of that later. I almost feel like like an extension to this class could even be like a good like gospel lesson. Like what is the good news? Yeah. And go that way to kind of like deal with that. But it, it seems to be like, huh, that's weird. You would think that they would at least be together somewhat. Or then, you know, how do you get to construct it? But we're going to push that to a side. And um, we're going to, you know, these numbers that we have in the Bible, you know, they're, they tell a very interesting story. Mm-hmm. It does seem that heaven and earth are very intimately connected in the Bible. There's a some type of dialogue going on. And you could, if you wanted to, go through all of those scriptures and kind of pull out, okay, what is this trying to tell me? We're going to go a different approach. We're going to try and look at an overarching narrative by exploring some concepts, some topical studies, if you will. Uh, you know, heaven's mentioned quite a lot. As we've said, earth is mentioned even more. Heaven and earth are paired together quite often as well. Hell is only mentioned 15 times and only in the New Testament, just to summarize what we've talked about so far. Heaven and hell, or heaven and hell, are paired together exactly zero <laughs> times. Right? So then we'll back up and we'll talk about, okay, how is heaven talked about in the Bible? In general, right? So it's talked of as the sky. Mm-hmm. And how would you describe the sky? Blue and pretty. Blue and pretty. <laughs> okay. That's great. And I'm going to give you some scripture references here. I don't think we'll go to them today. Uh, but Genesis 1.1, Psalms 68, verse 34. And Psalm 148.13, uh, kind of describing heaven the, the word that we translate as heaven as the sky, place for the birds, uh, you know, and all that wonderful stuff. It's also described as God's space. Yeah. The place that belongs to God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Deuteronomy 26, verse 15, Psalm 2, 4, Psalm 115, 2 to 3, Isaiah 66, 1. Those are all places that kind of describe heaven as this is this is the abode of god right or of a class of creatures created by god that are like him in terms of like spiritual beings mm-hmm. like the like another name for god is el elohim mm-hmm. which means the elohim mm-hmm. for those of you who don't speak hebrew <laughs> like myself and just elohim with no l just yes. elohim which just means like spirit or gods, mm-hmm. or sometimes even translated as uh, demons. Mm-hmm. But demons is such a misleading word because yeah. it, it really almost means, like the Greeks wouldn't have thought of demons as demonic the way that we necessarily think of them. Yeah. They would have been thought of more as like powers. Yeah, maybe you could share the Bible Project does a great job with they the do. videos with that. They whole do. Concept. Yeah, they do a great mm-hmm. job of that. You know, again, if you're just looking for a taste. Mm-hmm. If you want to do a deep dive, especially Podcast. since this is coming out around um, Halloween-ish time. <laughs> Interesting. What I would do is I would pick up a copy of The Unseen Realm. I would wait till about 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> I would sit by a fireplace in a dark, dark house. And I would pick me up and start reading Unseen Realm by Michael Heisner. It is amazing. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. We get some pumpkin spice lattes. 
right? Or some pumpkin something, or some caramel apples. No, I spice. saw it. I saw you by the fireplace. Yeah. That yeah. it's well, we have a fake one, but it it's still it's it's still it's, nice. It, well, it's still nice. We could use the fire outside, <laughs> I guess. And um, you know, God's space here is also used to contrast human space, hmm. which would be the earth. Yeah. You know, and you can see that reference in Psalm one fifteen, verses sixteen. So they seem to be separate concepts. So, oh, and shout out to uh, Tim Mackey and the crew at the uh, Bible Project. A lot of the stuff that we're referencing here comes from a study that they did. Uh, The first thing I think they ever did on their podcast with their Heaven and Earth series, and they published a PDF, like as a study guide, which I don't think they've done for anything else, Hmm. uh, at least that I've been able to find. And um, it's very, very useful because, again, this is something that the Bible talks about all the time. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think sometimes, like, you know, you can almost even get mad at me when you like discover something and you're like, and I'm like, oh yeah, I knew that. And you're like, but why didn't you say anything? And I'm like, but they're, they're so, not saying that like, you know, there's anything special about me, but there's sometimes I can feel like there's so much and it's a challenge of me to make it like digestible for people. Well, it's also your strength to mm. be able to see that. And when it's our strength, we assume sometimes that other people could see the same thing that we do. Yeah. So no, great. Grace and compassion to you. I think of myself <laughs> as Gandalf the Grey. Wow. From the Lord of the Rings at times. Wow. Because he had lived such a long life, especially when you find out uh, his real history from the Cimmerillion. Nerd shout outs. This is totally fictitious, by the way. Some of you people are way too cool for this. And you're like, why Lord of the Rings? Gandalf the Grey? Um, yeah. So basically, he was sometimes not trusted by people because mm. people felt like he didn't give them all the information. And he was like, how could I? <laughs> mm. You know, like I, there's so much up in here. It's like I just never thought to mention that to you. I see. Like when, uh, I can see that. when the One Ring of Power was found, mm-hmm. like you know, and in, in, like by Frodo. Oh, okay. Well, first by Bilbo, but then Frodo had it. Right. Like it never even entered into Gandalf's mind that it possibly could have been the One Ring of Power that could undo the world, mm. right? Of Middle Earth. So it's almost like you know, did Gandalf drop the ball there? Maybe you know. But he had like so much, he was doing all so many other things. Anyway, not to compare myself to the greatest wizard of uh, fantasy history, but I, I think I will. You may call me James the Grey for now on. Yeah, maybe for this episode. We'll or, try for this episode. I would, call, I would say you can call me James the White, but that just sounds wrong in this day and age. Okay. So, moving along. Moving on. We were in human space. Human space. Yes. So, you know, and even if you really wanted to get a great scripture for this, you could even just go to the first chapter of the Bible, first page of the Bible. In mm. the first line, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, you know, for most of Western Christianity... Like, I'm sorry. When I finished reading, reading Heaven and Earth by Middleton, right? New Heavens and New Earth. New Heavens and New Earth. Yep. And I went to Genesis and I read that. Uh, my head exploded. Yeah. It's been right here. <laughs> the whole time. In the first, first, <laughs> the whole time. Yeah. It's like, wait a minute. God didn't create hell? Like, cause maybe he created it later, but then you read on, and you're like, oh, but the seventh day he rested and he finished creation in the six days, and I don't see any hell in days one through six, <laughs> and then you're wondering like what's going on, and you know, as uh, you know, I've heard Tim Mackey say before in one of his sermons, like you know, like whatever hell is, 
God didn't create it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem to be that God created it. And, you know, it's been echoed uh, by N.T. Wright and other authors that, that, that we love to read and learn from. Yes. Um, so, yeah. But so, then what... So we seem to be two distinct realms. Mm-hmm. One for spiritual beings and one for creatures with bodies. <laughs> like us. Mm-hmm. You know, or with flesh. Right? And they seem to be like two distinct realms. But the Bible does seem to paint a portrait that at times... Those two worlds overlap, overlap mm-hmm. or they intersect. And, uh, you know, I love this concept because I do feel like this is something that's shared by all the cultures of the world. Mm. You know, I, uh, I'm i a big literature guy, as you know, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, so I love like reading the old fairy tales and old myths and legends, yeah. you know, like. Again, I was a really weird kid. I used to kid. think you were so weird with that, you know. Like, I was such a weird a, kid. I mean, a, when I first when we first got married, I was like, "Oh, why does he have all these books?" <laughs> I went through one like really weird phase where I was really into like Norse legends. I don't even know what that like, is. Like like Viking legends, oh, okay, like okay. from Scandinavia, like Thor and Ragnarok and all the things that are like cool now yeah. because of Avengers. Like, yeah. I was uh, there when it was wasn't cool, guys. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I think it all sort stemmed from uh, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons had a source guide for, uh, like, a Viking source pack. And it had, like, a bunch of, like, myths. And I was, this is so cool. And I went to the library. And I, anyway. Um, but this is a concept that's not, like, unique to uh-huh. the Hebrew Bible. Right. It's, you know, almost every culture on Earth, especially the more uh, you were connected to the land, the more agrarian, the more hunter-gatherer when you were going through that transition, because some of our, our fairy tales are estimated to even be like, you know, 10,000 plus years old, hmm. like remnants of it, not the entire, not Beauty and the Beast or like the <laughs> Lion King, but the stories that like, shout out to Disney, <laughs> but the stories that inspired some of those things, exactly. you know, the stories that inspired those stories, right. the, the, the core stories stretch back way back into time. And there's always a sense of, these special places Hmm. or these magical places Mm -hmm. where the unseen realm or the spiritual realm seems to intersect with the earthly realm and strange things can happen. Hmm. And one of uh, the best examples of that in the Hebrew Bible is Jacob's dream. Okay. Right. Sometimes referred to as Jacob's ladder. Hmm. You know, I found that most scholars hate the term Jacob, Jacob's ladder because they feel like it's a mistranslation. Um, not really a ladder, but I think it's the word for step or, mm. or step pyramid. So what Jacob saw might have actually been more of something like this. Like what we would call a ziggurat. And we will put this on the YouTube uh, yeah. video. So if you think sure. of like a block pyramid where you have like big rectangles and the rectangles get smaller and smaller and smaller. Oh, yeah. You know, kind of like what I like to see for Christmas. I like to see lots of boxes. Yes, you do. And, you know, a really big box and oh, this small, is gonna small be our boxes. Year, honey. Yeah. Um, you know, that's kind of what more Jacob saw. And I'm going to read this for you guys because I, I feel like it's this is important to slow down a little bit here. Then Jacob departed from Bathsheba and went down to a Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and he put it under his head. So he had a pillow. And lay down in that place. He had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, 
And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust on the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And you and all of your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have said, what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So the idea of there being a gate or a doorway or some type of transition between the spiritual realm and the heavenly realm, right? Um, there, there's a concept of them being separate and distinct, right? Spaces that overlap, you know, seen with Moses, right? Holy ground in Exodus three verses one to six. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He also he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So the idea of a space that is somehow holy. Yeah. The transition of the heavenly and the earthly somehow coming together, God's space and man's space, and it becoming holy. And in a sense, dangerous. Mm. It's somehow dangerous. Like God is telling Moses, don't come any closer. Take your sandals off your feet. You know, we have echoes back to the Garden of Eden Mm. here. You know, the removing of clothes. Mm. You know, the uh, shedding of armor, if you would, echoing back our previous episodes. Um, the shedding of clothing, being vulnerable before God, yeah, right. That being necessary to even approach God, mm-hmm. vulnerability. Um, I don't know if you ever ran around without shoes on. I'm sure you did, knowing who you are. <laughs> you never ran around without shoes, like aren't you like the roller skate girl? Yeah, I, I will run around in wheels. Okay, I don't so know I, about without shoes. I guess I did. I was like the cave boy. Yeah, I don't think my dad would have allowed me not to have shoes. Oh, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> he has a shoe problem. Yeah, <laughs> I showed her dad uh, my shoes. I, I I love to like basically wear my shoes until they fall off my feet, and um, <laughs> I was just I thought it was cool that I could stick my finger through my my sneakers because I had you know I was like check this out Lucho and he gave me this face. 
Like, he was so disturbed. You took him back there. And, like, I think next weekend, he FaceTimed us. It's like, I'm in the store right now buying your shoes. Right. What do you like? And, it's and like, then last week, he also <laughs> bought your shoes. So, right now, Jimmy has two new pairs of shoes. Yeah, I guess he's saving... Well, one is on hold. He's saving some for Christmas, I guess. <laughs> I mean, if he's got me a, get me a Christmas present, I have a few books I could put on my list. Of course but you do. Anyway. Yes. That, that's a gift for, for Jimmy, guys. A book. So the concept of heaven and earth as separate and distinct places that can overlap in holy ground. Mm-hmm. The ground becomes holy, right? The idea of God coming down. So direction is very important in the Hebrew cosmology, in the Jewish cosmology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, you could, you could talk at length at this, but the idea that, you know, God is above and we are below. Not necessarily in direction, but maybe in order of operations. Mm. <laughs> in terms of like God is bigger than us. Mm-hmm. He's more powerful than us. And when he descends to the earth, you know, like he, there's a coming down. And uh, you can see that clearly in Exodus 19 verses 9 to 12. And the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and so trust you ever after. Then Moses reported the people's words to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and warn them to stay pure today and tomorrow. Let them wash their clothes. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people on Mount Sinai. So this idea of God coming down to the people. And in verse 12, you shall set bounds for the people round about, saying, Beware of going up the mountain or touching the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be either stoned or shot. Beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up on the mountain. So this is idea of God coming down. God coming down in a cloud, descending on the mountain. God coming down to man. In Exodus 19, 9 to 12. All right. Places where heaven and earth meet. So this should kind of clue us in to like, okay, where where's the first place that we, we see heaven and earth meeting as one, right? And that takes us back to Genesis 2, right? Where heaven and earth fully overlapped. God was with man and man was with God. They lived together. This is kind of like the Eden ideal. Uh, place that becomes an archetype of how the world is supposed to be ordered so if you've ever thought to yourself it just feels like the world is not right mm-hmm. you're not alone so did the authors of the hebrew scriptures right and they said it was all because something had happened that had separated man from god that had separated uh earth from heaven and that's why uh and this is big big in jewish cosmology way more deep than we realize at first we can easily dismiss uh, like what the Hebrew Bible says about the world, mm-hmm. or we can try and make it say things that it, that it doesn't say, um, like about the stars and the universe and about the circle of the earth. But, you know, it's, it's way, way deeper, and I think that deserves its own. I'll try and link some resources if I can uh, for people to get more in touch with that. So Garden of Eden, original place, heaven and earth as one. And then you go through the entire story of the Bible, Right, you go through the first five books, you go to uh, taking the land of Canaan, you go through the time of the judges, the time of the monarchy, 
right? And you have these little moments of temples where God mm-hmm. tells his people to make temples. And there are they are culminating events. They are big, big deals in the scripture that we mostly kind of just don't talk about because we don't understand mm-hmm. and we can't relate to the idea of temples. Hmm. But the two main temples, right? Um, well, one would be like the tabernacle or tent of meeting that Moses set up. It was kind of like a mobile tent, like a mobile home, <laughs> right? That they could take wherever they want. A schoolie, yep. That's in Exodus 25 30, and 31. And uh, Solomon's temple uh, would be 1 Kings 6 through 7. They have some similarities. So they're both described in Eden-like imagery. So they're decorated with you know trees, fruit trees, flowers, decorative stones, all things that call back to the original descriptions of Eden back in the first few chapters of Genesis. Uh, they are a place where God and humanity can coexist together in harmony, mm. right? So they, again, echoing Eden. Eden was a place of harmony where we were aligned with God, you know, really as one. Um, and so temples are very, very similar. Uh, the purpose of the temple, as told in Exodus 25, 22 and Exodus 29, 42 to 46, uh, is so that he can dwell with his people. And it's as if God's implementing a plan to bring heaven and earth back together through his temple. So really, I mean, when you when you see it, you can't like not see it. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere in the Bible. You know, like it kind of this is kind of a culmination of where God was going. Tragedy right from the beginning, uh, man and women, man and woman being driven from the garden, the gate being blocked, Mm -hmm. they can't enter anymore, uh, and God trying to figure out how to bring it back all together, right? We get the big macro story, basically the story of the entire human history in Genesis 1 to 11, and then we go to the family of God, right? God calls out Abraham from Babylon, and it kind of goes through there. Um, Temples are where God dwells, right? First Kings 8, 27 to 30, Solomon talks about how even though the presence of God fills all of creation, he has chosen to dwell in his temple. So God's just not in the temple. He's, he, his presence fills everything, but he's chosen to exist in his temple. He seems to have a very, very unique relationship with his house or mm-hmm. with his temple, mm-hmm. you know? And God likes to say from time to time in the, in the Bible, it's not that I need it. You know, like, who asked you for this? And you're kind of like, well, you did, God. <laughs> um, but it's like, it's not something that he needs. Right. He doesn't need anything built by human beings, right? But he's chosen to exist or to dwell there. Right. Yeah. And then we have tra- what I like to call tragedy between two gardens. So you have Eden to Eden, you can think of it as. In Genesis 3.24, he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed a cherubim and a flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So we have a garden in the beginning. Men and women, Adam and Eve, get driven from it. Mm-hmm. God blocks the way, right, with a fiery sword and a cherubim. And when you think, when you hear cherubim, you shouldn't think of a fat little baby with wings <laughs> and a diaper mm-hmm. and a little harp going ding, 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 ding. You should think <laughs> of a ferocious lion-like creature with wings and all types of ferocious attributes. Um, and then you go through... I just saw the visual for the video. Nice. Yeah. Way. And it's you. Okay. <laughs> um, no, no. I meant with the ding, ding, ding. Oh, oh, wow. 
Wow. <laughs> it's happening. It's happening. No. I love it. Okay. I'm sorry. Please uh, continue. While you're writing that down, stop writing that down. <laughs> uh, so you have that garden that we got kicked out of. And then the story of Moses, uh, you know, leaving Egypt with the people, going to the foot of Mount Sinai, then becoming a people, God's people there at the foot. Moses goes up, right? The people sin Mm -hmm. by creating an idol, right? There's tragedy again. Um, God agrees to stay with them. He gives them instructions for how to build his tabernacle or his mobile tent of meeting in, uh, in the desert. Some people think that they might have been two different things, but, you know, that's a discussion for a different day. Uh, But it culminates at the end of Exodus. So there's several chapters of them building this thing. Yeah. About how amazing it's going to be. God gives Moses the pattern, Mm -hmm. right? He selects out people by name, being good at working with stone, being good at working with different materials, right? He selects them. They, They spend a few more chapters building this thing. And then all of a sudden, Moses can't go in. And the story of Exodus ends in chapter 40. It says, Moses was not able to tent a meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. So they set this up. They hang all the curtains. God descends in a cloud and fire and nobody can go in. And it's like tragedy. (laughs) Here we are again. At another like representation of the Eden ideal, mm. and we have mankind outside, unable to go in. Mm-hmm. So it seems like it's going to be a repeating story. Yeah. But this time, God has a plan, and the plan is the most, the much overlooked book of Leviticus, <laughs> right? Leviticus one, Skip. one. <laughs> then Yahweh called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So God is inside. This little Garden of Eden, this little tent, this little tabernacle, speaking to Moses, and he basically speaks to him the book of Leviticus. And the book of Leviticus has all types of fun stuff. Do you remember anything about the book of Leviticus? No. Mildew laws and um, things for like when women are on their period, they need to go away for two weeks. Oh, wow. Making some people think that it was written by men, like just go away for two weeks. (laughs) Really? Or a week. Or in the street. I'm kidding. Um, It's much, much, much deeper than that. It gives you all these rules for how to become ritually pure. Mm. And um, the way, a lot of times the way to become unpure is by touching the substance of life, like reproductive fluids, like, you know, dead bodies and all types of stuff like that. Um, So they spend a year basically living this out. So God gives them holidays in the book of Leviticus. Mm. He gives them a calendar. So this is, I think, where you should really love the book of Leviticus once you really get into it. Because God gives them an entire year plan. What? And this year plan was going to be their model for the rest of, not even their lives, but the rest of the existence of Israel. It's like God had a life plan. Wow. Like from that movie, that cartoon movie. Oh, gosh. That movie's awesome yeah 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 i remember i remember our niece was like mom could i have one oh, that's gonna go on the show notes and your mom was like and her mom my sister-in-law was like ask your tia <laughs> meaning me <laughs> maybe she'll make you one um you know it's just the idea of god gave them the pattern not only of how to worship him or the temple to build for him but how to live as people of god yeah and apparently they did it they did it for a year they practiced all of their 
festivals at the appointed times. They made all the proper sacrifices. Love it. Because in the book of Numbers, success, yes. <laughs> and it's cool. In a totally Jewish way, it doesn't even say, yes, success. It expects you to be tracking with the story so that you pick up on this. It says, then Yahweh spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting. Mm. Moses is now inside the tent of meeting. Mm. Book of Exodus, he can't go in. Mm-hmm. Leviticus was given by God to resolve that problem, and they actually did it. Yeah. And then Moses was able to go in, even though the presence of the Lord was there, mm-hmm. previously kicked him out. Um, yeah, and we, we know it's a, it's been a year because here it's talking about um, the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So we know that they the implication there is that they did an entire year of festivals. Wow. They did an entire year of sacrifices. So I love festivals. Yeah, you know, and it's almost as if, you know, like, I don't know if this was like God's presence allowed them to come in little by little. You know, there's some implication there that throughout the year they were able to go deeper and deeper into the temple until they were eventually able to go into the most sacred place, which would be the Holy of Holies, right? They really could only be entered once a year by the high priest. Anyway, so that's kind of sets up the pattern here. Happens again with Solomon's temple, right? So they get into the land, you know, God is still in a tent, King David is very, very upset at this. He's like, how can I live in a house of cedar when God is living in a tent? (laughs) And God's like, who asked you to make me a house? I like my tent. Thank you very much. Hashtag go camping. Hashtag God loves camping. And so should you. Uh, And God says, no, you can't build my temple. It's going to be your son. You know, we get kind of two different accounts of God conversation with david one in kings and one in um sorry one in second samuel and one in first chronicles so we're kind of like you know have some different connotations um but let's let's look at this so solomon gets to build god's temple and it's an amazing temple it has it's made of stone gold it's huge it's a big deal solomon was the wisest and greatest king Israel ever had, even though he messed up so many other ways. And that's like a different story. But in this sense, this was like his shining moment. Hmm. Now, it says in Second Chronicles 7, verse 1 to 2, Now, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. So this idea again of coming down. And fire. And fire. The glory of Yahweh filled the house. The priests could not enter into the house of Yahweh because the glory of Yahweh filled Yahweh's house. So you have the same, this now echoes back to Exodus. and Same thing. And it actually even says, not in this verse, but I think in the chapter before, Solomon, it's almost like sitting back and goes, the Lord said his presence would fill the temple with a cloud. Hmm. You know, almost kind of like, yes, we got it right. We made it according to the pattern, just as God instructed us. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of Yahweh upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. And they worshiped and gave praise to Yahweh, saying, truly, he is good. Truly, his loving kindness is everlasting. Right. So it's like they're worshiping God and they can't get in. (laughs) It's like tragedy again. 
But this time, Solomon, because Solomon knew his Hebrew scriptures, knew what to do. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before Yahweh King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Obviously, those numbers are symbolic. They, they mean more than massive amounts of, I guess, lamb curry or whatever they'd be making there. Thus the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. The priests stood at their posts and the Levites also with the instruments of music to Yahweh, which King David had made for giving praise to Yahweh. For his loving kindness is everlasting. And from the class we just did, what does that remind you of? His loving kindness is everlasting. The most important scripture in the Hebrew Bible. Oh, Isaiah. Is it Isaiah? Nope. It's in... (laughs) It's it's remember Moses and the seeing God's glory, seeing the back of him. Exodus it kind of begins in chapter twenty three, where he kind of talks about he wants to see God's face, and God's like, no, you can't see my face, you'll die, but you can see my back. And then you know God goes before him, and he hears as the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God compassionate and gracious slow to anger, abounding in kindness and faithfulness, extending kindness to the thousands generation, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he does not remit all punishment, but he visits the iniquity of parents upon children and children's children upon the third and fourth generation. Here, uh, the New American Standard translated it as loving kindness. But here it's like, you know, they're referencing basically the scripture. So Solomon knows his Hebrew Bible. Cool. It was the story of his people. So, yeah, this idea again of Solomon making the temple. Once again, they can't uh, get into the temple, right? Because God's presence fills it. And what do they have to do? They have to make sacrifice. They have to make sacrifices to be able to get into uh, God's temple. So there's this concept of having to deal with the sin, right? Having to make some type of clean space. So that you can get into God's temple, God's new Eden, right? This new place where heaven and earth are supposed to become one, but you can't get in unless you first deal with the sin. Right. The sin of the people, your own sin, um, and just being wrong in general. Not like wrong, like not knowing the answers to, the, to a test, <laughs> but just being in a state of wrongness, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So dealing with sin. So God kind of proposed in the book of Leviticus animal sacrifices as a way to deal with sin. Leviticus 16 verses, and Leviticus 16, there's the concept of the two goats or the two lambs, right? One would be given to Yahweh. They would cast lots over these these two goats. One would be sacrificed to Yahweh. uh, And the other one would, the high priest would come and lay their hands on the goat and symbolically lay the sins of Israel onto the goat and kind of whisper all the sins to it. And then they would drive it away into the wilderness. So they would send the sin away from the camp, Hmm. you know? So that was probably a really confused goat on that day. You know, it's like, why can't I go home anymore? And they would like send it away. Um, And Leviticus 17.11 kind of gives the, uh, the logic of why this works. Um, if you know as much as you can call it 
It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your nefesh, or your soul, mm-hmm. right? For it is the blood, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So life for life. Mm-hmm. So the blood, the sacrifice, the blood of the animal, somehow covers or makes atonement for the sins of the people, right? And that creates like a little clean space, and then you can kind of go into the temple. Right. This was actually why uh, there was people felt that there was something seriously wrong with the temple in Jesus's day because the presence had never returned in this way. Mm. God's presence never came and where they had to, you know, they couldn't go in. God's presence didn't return in the cloud and in fire. Um, And that brings us to Jesus where heaven and earth meet. Mm -hmm. So Jesus as a temple where heaven meets earth John 1.14 uses this kind of type of language. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God dwelling among his people. And we saw his glory just as the glory descended onto those two temples back mm. in uh, the Old Testament, Hebrew scriptures. Uh, we saw his glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, this calls back to Exodus 29, 44 through 46. Call box as well to the glory of Yahweh filling Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. John 2, 18 to 22, Jesus clears the temple. This now that as we've kind of gone through the storyline, okay, that happened with Moses, it happened with Solomon, it happened at those two t- temples, the two recreations of Eden from God. And so Jesus, in a sense, does it again. He goes to the temple and he clears it of sin. And then he enters mm-hmm. and he's there alone with his people. Just as the glory of Yahweh filled the precious temples and no one could go inside, as we saw in the past. Then Jesus turns around, he says, I'm the temple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he clears it yeah. and he says, I'm it. Mm-hmm. I'm the temple. Colossians uh, chapter 1, verses 19 to chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, Paul kind of uses the language of the fullness of God's presence, you know, in Jesus. And this is a reference to Isaiah 6, verses 3 which again in itself is a callback uh, to Chronicles and Exodus. So the fullness of God in Christ, uh, calling back to, you know, basically Jesus as the temple. Uh, Jesus is also the sacrifice that deals with the sin, mm. right? In John 1, the Lamb of God who carries away the sins of the world, uh, the two goats from Leviticus, the scapegoat and the one that was sacrificed, mm. Jesus is somehow in a sense both perhaps, uh, one for Yahweh and one for wandering. First Corinthians five through seven, Jesus as the Passover lamb, right? Paul talks about Jesus as the Passover lamb uh, who, you know, allows the wrath of God to pass over. First Peter one, eight to 19, Jesus's death compared to the day of atonement, right? Day of atonement. Where do we get the day of atonement? We get that from Leviticus, that's right, sandwiched in that little narrative, right? Tragedy, Moses can't enter. We get the book of Le- Leviticus. We do it for a year. Culminates on the Day of Atonement. Hooray, Moses inside the tent of meeting talking to God, you know? <laughs> so harkens back to the Day of Atonement. You know, it's uh, it's ironic sometimes too, because I think sometimes, you know, oh, I hear the Day of Atonement. We just go back, right back and we study out what the Day of Atonement said. But there's this whole other narrative that the Day of Atonement is like, 
couched in. And I think you have to make sure you, you know the whole story. Mm-hmm. So if you can imagine the Day of Atonement in Leviticus, that first year, as the culmination of that year-long project to get into the presence of God, to get back into the temple, to get back in metaphorically to a Garden of Eden-like state, mm. you know, of harmony with God, living with God. Uh, you can kind of see, you know, the Jesus story as the culmination of that. Yeah. Okay. You know? Makes sense. And then through that, through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the church is described as a temple as well. Uh, like in the day of Pentecost, mm-hmm. Acts 2, verses 1 through 4, where the tongues of fire descend. Mm-hmm. Fire again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fire again, mm-hmm. kind of like in a cloud. Descending. Descending. Mm-hmm. Um, it comes on each person. It's a call back to the divine presence resting on the temple, resting in a temple, dwelling in a temple, Exodus 40 and Second Chronicles 7, as we've, we've seen. Uh, the church is the temple, as described in Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. Jesus' followers are now together, God's temple, right? The community kind of becomes that temple where God's spirit dwells. Uh, God's presence dwells in this new temple made of people. By his spirit. So Jesus dwells in the people through his spirit, and that somehow makes us as a church into God's new temple. And my favorite would be in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 5, where we're described as living stones. Mm. You know, and I love that idea of like stones kind of like having faces and being like, I don't know, singing like Fraggle Rock songs or something like that. Down a Fraggle Rock, down a Fraggle Rock. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, I always forget you didn't grow up in this country. Um, so Living Stones. And I'm a 90s chick uh, you into are. hip-hop and I don't even know. Okay, I'm so sorry. Muppets. I was heavily influenced by the Muppets, okay? <laughs> Thanks, Jim Henson. I know some of you guys get it. Anyway, First uh, Peter, or Peter in his letter, which we call First Peter, describes us as Living Stones. Hmm. So they they were they they were tracking with what Jesus was doing here. They understood the grand narrative, uh, which is sometimes I think when we come in and we just take the end of it, we we miss. Hmm. We we come to the wrong conclusions. Hmm. We have all the right facts, but somehow we have the wrong story. Wow. We have all the right words in the language, yeah. but we're put, mashing it together in a way that it's not true to the spirit and the heart of the original narrative uh the idea of the restoration of all things a new heaven and a new earth right jesus peter and paul you could think of them obviously jesus you know like the most important uh but we hear his words through the gospels both jesus peter and paul they're on the same page here Mm -hmm. you know matthew 19 28 jesus said to them truly i say to you in the new world Mm -hmm. or in the greek in the regeneration when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of israel peter in a sermon that we all should go back and read because it completely summarizes this overarching narrative that we've talked about as peter often does in the book of acts repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time. Heaven's going to receive Jesus for a little while. 
Jesus is in heaven, until he comes back for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets long ago. So Peter's tracking. I don't think we give Peter enough credit as the brilliant theologian he was Mm. because he's kind of cast, or we cast him sometimes when we read the Gospels as the lovable goofball. Yeah. Peter knew his scripture. Or super emotional. Yeah, super emotional. Mm -hmm. Peter knew his stuff. Mm -hmm. Peter knew his Old Testament. Peter knew his Hebrew scriptures. Or Paul in Romans 8.21, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, or sometimes translated as decay, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This idea of of creation being held captive in death and decay and corruption, and it's not going to be destroyed so we all can go to some place in the clouds with the harps <laughs> and the little fat baby cherubs, right? Right. Uh, but, you know, like there's almost the idea of God coming back again and then, you know, setting the world free from corruption, restoring all things in the new world, as Jesus says in Matthew 19, 28. Uh, resurrection, new life and new creation. New creation, we go from garden, tabernacle to temple to Jesus, to us, mm-hmm. right? Connect that line. And ultimately, heaven and earth becoming one, as we see in the last chapters of Revelation, right? Of the city coming down from heaven, mm. not us going up there, right? Right. <laughs> the city coming down, yes. God coming down. There's no, there's no sun anymore symbolically because God is the light, right? There's no temple in this new city because there's no need for it. Every place is the temple. Yeah. Every place is where heaven and earth are one. And so when you follow that storyline out, and then you sit back and you ask yourself, okay, great. What about hell? <laughs> You're kind of like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. What about it? Right. And I think there are some scriptures that can trip us up. Yeah. And there are some ways of reading things that have, you know, kind of let us down this path. It doesn't come out of nowhere. I don't think people are stupid. Right. I think there's real reasons why. Of course. And I think that there's a, there's a good opportunity here for us to recapture the story that I think most of us have lost. Uh, and that could potentially be future episodes where then we can, I think a good next step would be actually going through the gospel. What is the gospel? Mm-hmm. Is the gospel that spread as quickly as it did in the early days of Christianity, despite potentially being put to death for this gospel was the good news really hey guys guess what good news everyone you know is going to hell or was it more in line with this narrative that we've kind of just sketched out that god is making all things new right god is coming and he's restoring the eden ideal of heaven to earth and what that means for you and me